We turn in God's Word this evening to the book of Genesis chapter 3 as we continue our series of messages on angels we come to what we would probably have to say is the first encounter the first message that deals with us or the first words that we read in scripture of the existence of angels and of their presence now, because we've dealt with the fall of satan in messages uh, Several weeks ago, I'm, I'm going to pick up the story um, as we find it, in starting in verse 14, and then we'll read to the end. We know of the fall. They're tempted by the serpent. They eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes are opened. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children." Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we hold your Bible in our hands with reverent awe. For, Lord, we are not just holding a book. We are not just reading words out of a page. These are your words, Lord, your living, spoken words to us. And we thank you for the opportunity to be able to have this Bible and to be able to read these words from you. We pray that you will give Pastor Bob the things that he stands in need of in delivering this message. Clarity of mind, clarity of words, clarity of thought. We pray that they will sit on our hearts, for we know, Lord, that this is truth and that there is nothing else but this as truth. For your word is good and gracious. We just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And amen. Three things from this passage, and we want to focus our attention particularly on verses 22, 23, and 
24 this evening. First of all, the reason that we are given in Scripture for why the angels were placed where they were. Secondly, the description, the angels that is, give, that is given. And then thirdly, the grace of their presence. For truly, this was an act of grace on the part of the Lord. First of all, the reason for the angels' placement. There's actually two. One is to keep man from the tree of life. God does not want the man to reach out and to take hold of the tree of life and live forever. God says, I don't want that. Therefore, I'm going to not only drive the man out, I am going to place there cherubim to keep man from that tree. Now, it would appear then that as we think about that, That man had access to that tree of life. God never gave a command to Adam in the garden. Hey, by the way, there's two trees. Don't eat from either one of them. God's command is you are free to eat from any tree that is in the garden. Except for the tree of knowledge of good and life. Good and evil. So the idea seems to be that man could daily take of the tree of life and therefore live. However long he's in the garden, he's able to go to the tree of life, take of the tree of life, and live. And that would have been the situation had God not driven him out. He could have gone to the tree of life, taken, and eaten. Because that's what God is saying. He could also take of the tree of life and eat, and then live forever. So it's to keep man from that. It's to guard the entrance. Now remember, okay, sometimes we need just little subtle reminders. The Garden of Eden is not the entirety of the earth that God created. If we read the account of creation, God creates and then God plants a garden. The Garden of Eden is but a part of God's creation. And that is where man goes. Now, the question would be, well, he's got the whole earth. Did Adam ever leave the Garden of Eden? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. He was certainly free to do so. Just like when you plant a garden, you don't have to spend 24-7 in your garden. You can come and go from your garden. Somehow we get it in our heads that this garden is the place where they had to live. And they they stayed there 24-7 every day, every waking hour they were in the garden. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. He has a whole earth that God has given to him. There is an entrance to the garden. The garden isn't surrounded by a fence that Adam can never leave. There is an entrance. Was Adam free to come and go? The implication of this text is yes. Adam could come and go out of the garden any time he felt like coming and going. He could come in and take of the tree of life. He could take of the other trees that were producing food. And he could freely eat only of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was he not to eat. So he plants, God places this cherubim there at the entrance of the garden to keep 
man from accessing that tree of life. So that's one reason why, why God puts the cherubim there. But there is a second reason. And that's to remind man that his salvation was not going to be found in that garden. See, what would be the tendency? Stay in the garden. My salvation is in the garden. I'm going to find my salvation somewhere in this garden. In this garden is where I'm going to be saved. Note, the passage tells us that God had to drive him out. Verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out. That doesn't sound like he went willfully. Adam sinned. He's in sin. I don't want to leave here, God. I like the garden. I don't want to go out there. I go out there. I got to work. You told me there's thorns and thistles out there. I want to stay here because my salvation is going to be found here. This is where I will find my salvation. And God says, no, you need to be driven out of here. You need to go out of here. And I'm going to put cherubim at the entrance to guard the way to the garden and to the tree of life because your salvation is not found in that which is physical. Your salvation is found in the promise that I have given to you. There shall be one who will come, who will deliver you. That is where your salvation is found. It's not found in the garden. You know, it's kind of interesting, but, but here's the picture over and all again, isn't it? It's, it's this morning's message from Galatians. It casts in a different setting. Where's Adam looking for his salvation? In something tangible, in something that he can feel, touch, hold. That's where Adam is looking. He wants something earthy. He wants something he can involve himself in. He wants a piece of fruit he can reach out and hold and take hold of. But salvation is never found in the things of this world. Salvation is to be found only in that promise and in faith in that promise. what God's word and our confessions keep coming back to that these folks who lived in the Old Testament are indeed saved by faith no different than you and I a faith that God gives them a faith in the promise of a deliverer a promise of a savior not in the garden Adam you gotta leave the garden and Adam I am so so wanting you not to seek your salvation in the garden I'm gonna put a cherubim at the entrance of this garden, to guard the entrance, but also to keep you from that tree of life. Those are the reasons that we are given. It's interesting that when Adam leaves Eden, he dwells in a land called Eden. He tries to recreate the garden. Even after being tossed out, he still wants a part of that. He still wants in some way to, to, to reach out, to still try to find. A friend of mine a number of years ago, who was an ex-Catholic, said, you know, you scrape any of us as Protestants or as Reformed people, if you scrape us hard enough, you find out that underneath the surface, we too still want to try to earn our salvation. We still want to create our own Eden. 
we still want salvation on our terms and not God's. We still find it so hard that we resist God's grace. That we harden our hearts and do not hear and do not listen to God's call from his gospel. A number of you mentioned this morning's sermon to me afterwards and your appreciation, and I'm humbled by that. The praise belongs not to me but to the Lord. But you should know that this morning we had a number of folks in our congregation who are not believers. Not believers. I can hear God's message of being justified by faith through Christ alone and walk away with a hard heart. Unless the Holy Spirit of God opens that heart. There go I. Unless God's Spirit opens our heart, we too would be forever wanting to create our Eden, a salvation on our terms, rather than the gracious provision of a holy God to us. Secondly, let's look at the description that we are given. Who did God place at this entrance? We are told in verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He placed the cherubim. Now, first of all, that's an interesting word, right? First time we have it in scripture. So every time, you know, if you listen to the Ken Han uh, stuff, the answers in Genesis, every time there's a first, we got to perk up our ears and go, hmm, God's telling us here. First time, first time it's mentioned. Was God communicating to us by telling us there were cherubim? One, it's cherubim, meaning it's plural. It's not one angel. My guess is that a number of you remember your Sunday school paper and your Sunday school paper clearly portrayed it as one angel at the entrance. Well, they didn't do very good in Hebrew, my guess is, because it's pretty easy to figure out it's plural. There's more than one. How many? Don't know. All we know is it's more than one. Could there have been a hundred angels, Garden? Could have been. Could have been a thousand. Could have been a hundred thousand there. We're not told. Just it's more than one. There is more than one angel standing there at that entrance to Eden. The thought occurred to me, I wonder if Adam had ever seen cherubim before. Is this Adam's first encounter? If we go back to our understanding or where Scripture seems to be leading us, that angels were created to be the servants of mankind, is it not possible that Adam and Eve had met, had encountered cherubim, angels prior to this? But there they were met them as their servants, those who were there to help, those who were there to assist. Now they're there to guard the entrance, to keep man from. Remember our description 
last Lord's Day of, of angels, these, these mighty beings that come in the glory of the Lord. Just that presence alone, standing there at that entrance, as a reminder, you don't dare cross this entrance. You are to keep away, Adam. You are to stay away from this place. You are not to enter. You have to deal with us. We used to be those who were there to serve you in the garden. Now we are there to keep you from the garden. We come to you in the might and the power of the Lord God. Our brilliance in appearance would remind you, Adam, of the fact of the holiness of God and of your sin and of your trespass and that you do not have the right to the tree of life any longer. Now, it's rather interesting if we stop and ask ourselves the question, who wrote this? wrote Genesis 3? Who gave us this piece of information? Answer is Moses. The first time this is ever recorded in a written form is by Moses. Does Moses know what a cherubim is? Uh, yes. Why? Because in the book of Exodus, Moses is commanded to build an Ark of the Covenant on top of which are to be two cherubim. How does Moses know what cherubim look like? Remember the passage? God showed him on the mountain. God gave him the blueprints. God gave him what they were to look like. He showed them. Moses, this is a cherubim. Build it. This was not left up to Moses' imagination. How silly this would be for us to think about the tabernacle and God going through all of these details and then when it comes to cherubim, he just says, ah, Moses, use your imagination. Just kind of, what do you think a cherubim might look like? That's okay, just cast it in gold, put it on top of the place that is right next to where I reside. I don't care what it is. Of course we'd look at that and say, well, that's silly. With all the details God has given, God certainly would have showed Moses. Would the people of Israel then have known what a cherubim was? What a cherubim looked like? Most likely. Levites certainly would have. Priests most definitely would have. See, for us, okay, for, for us in sense, we might go, does, does Adam know? I don't know if Adam knows what a cherubim looked like before this. I don't know for sure. Can't say that as an absolute. But does Moses, the writer, know what a cherubim is? Yes. So when God reveals to him, Moses, when Adam fell, I drove him out of the garden and I put cherubim there. Moses goes, oh, <laughs> I know what you put there. I know exactly what you put there. Because you told me to make cherubim, oh, not only on the ark, but you told me to put them on the, etch them into the embroidery work of the veil. Oh, you told me also to put them on the curtain that surrounds. Of course, God's people, they see these cherubim all the time. And what were those cherubim doing? Guarding and protecting the presence of God. Do the people of Israel, when they read 
Genesis chapter 3, understand what Moses is saying. Absolutely. They not only know it, they've seen cherubim. Because God showed him exactly what he wanted in all that embroidery work, in all that curtain work, in all that gold casting. Cherubim, many, many powerful, majestic, mighty beings. Standing there at the entrance, guarding the way to the tree of life. And then we read on, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, a careful reading of the text will tell us there's an and. Not a cherubim with. See that? Okay? If you're looking at the text, do you see the distinction? It's not a cherubim with a flaming sword. It's a cherubim and a flaming sword. However... As you go through God's word, what's interesting is we keep meeting angels who have swords in their hand. Remember, remember Balaam? Okay? He, you know, he, he's, the, he, he's the false prophet on his way. And then we have, oh, what is it? The angel of the Lord standing in the way. The angel of the Lord, you know, guess with what? A sword drawn. Kind of an interesting reminder, isn't it? So maybe, yes, and the flaming sword, but maybe the and simply means the cherubim and a sword together, united, so that each of these cherubim, however they were, have flaming swords. It exists as a possibility. Or you read Joshua chapter 5, 13. Joshua, they're going into in, in to the land of Canaan. And Joshua sees there an angel. And what is the angel holding? A sword in his hand. You have David encountering during the play that comes upon Jerusalem. He encounters an angel with a sword in his hand going over to Jerusalem to slay the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then there's that beautiful picture of, a, of an altar and a sacrifice being given there on Mount Moriah. And there, there as the sacrifice is offered, the next time we read of the angel is, the angel is taking his sword and he's putting it in its sheath. So would there be reason to say that these angels had swords? Could be, okay? based upon other passages in Scripture, and yet the text is telling us it seems to be there is a distinction, that there are cherubim there, but there is also the sword there. And our attention then is drawn upon the sword. A sword. Now think of that significance through Scripture. What is the significance of a sword? The sword becomes what? The Word of God. The Word of God is what? Sharper than any two-edged sword. We have the picture in Revelation of Christ. And, and John's revelation there of the Christ is a picture of him. And out of his mouth proceeded a sword. The sword is the Word of God. Ephesians. 
chapter 5 in the, in the armor of the believer. So note what's happening. God's messengers, the angels, come with the sword. God's messengers come with a word. God's messengers come with God's truth. See, and there's nothing ever to fear then. See, we, we tend to cower, don't we? Because we're not thinking rightly about God's word. We tend to be afraid. We tend to be afraid to bring up the matter of God's word. Well, what does God's word say about that? What does God's word teach us about that? We go, well, you know, we might be offensive to people. We might be, we're, we're, we're scared because we come armed with the word as if we're armed with something that is impotent. Something that, that cannot be. What you have to see is this is the sword of the Lord. This is the flaming sword. See, when we come in the Word of God, when we come with God's truth, we have nothing to fear. Uh, I, it's, it's this Reformation thing, so I've got to draw the, the picture, right? Why is Luther able, as this monk, basically on his own, realizing he's under some death threat, realizing he's under going to be under excommunication, why is he able to stand up before all these learned men and defend his position. Why? Because he's got the word of God. It is a flaming sword. He is armed with truth. He is armed with the word of God. See, that's why he doesn't back down. That's why he doesn't capitulate. See, if all I'm armed with is customs... I'm going to back away because it's like a custom is not something dying for. An interpretation is not something worth dying for. But God's truth, that is what you and I are to defend and to uphold and to go forward with because this is the sword of truth. It's a flaming sword. It's a double-edged sword. It purifies. See, how does God convert? He converts through his word and spirit. This is the means that God uses for people's lives. It's not our philosophy. It's not some psychobabble that we can use to convince somebody they ought to be a believer. It's God's truth abideth still. The next time you read this passage and you think about the cherubim there at the entrance and the flaming sword, think about it as there is God's truth, there is God's word. You shall find your salvation not in this garden, Adam. You shall find it in the promise that I gave your wife. That is where your salvation comes from. third thing in regards to that notice as well that the flaming sword is moving he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of life to the tree of life every way it turned every way it's in constant moving what does the new testament tell us but that the word of god is active it's active 
God's word is not stagnant. God's word doesn't just speak to Adam and Eve in the garden. God's word doesn't just speak to Moses in the desert. God's word doesn't just speak to a Joshua before he conquers Jericho. God's word doesn't just speak to a David. It doesn't just speak to an Elijah and Elisha and an Isaiah and a Jeremiah. It doesn't just speak to a John the Baptist or to a Peter and a John and a Paul. God's word still speaks to you and I. It is still active and it's still speaking. It's still going out. It's still piercing men's hearts. It's still pricking that heart and soul. The fact that they are a sinner and that cancer of sin needs to be cut out and removed. But it can be only cut out and removed by the one who is truly the word of God, Jesus Christ. A lot more going on than a Sunday school picture of some effeminate looking person standing at the entrance and of going, no, 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 Adam, you shouldn't come in. God is communicating so much in this. The thing I want you to catch more than anything else is God is communicating to us grace. This is such a blessing. And you go home tonight, get on your knees and say, Lord, I thank you. I thank you from the bottom of my heart that you put a cherubim and you put a flaming sword moving back and forth at the entrance. I thank you for guarding the tree of life. I thank you for keeping Adam from eating from that tree of life. Because here, my friend, are the options. The options are these. One, to live and to suffer in this sinful world forever. How'd you like that? How'd you like a cancer that never goes away? You're never going to die from the thing, but all you're going to do is live in agony forever and ever and ever. How'd you like to grow older and older and older and older and older and never die, but just grow weaker and weaker and weaker? How'd you like to deal with the family problems some of you deal with? Greater and greater and greater. Not just to your grandchildren, but to your great-grandchildren. Not just to your great-grandchildren, but to your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. Oh, the, the agony of the heart, the agony of the soul, the agony of the body. To live forever in this sinful world. See, that's what God is guarding Adam from. I want to go and eat from the tree of life. And God says, no, no, no. I know that's the desire. I know you would do anything you could to do that. But I'm going to guard you from it. I'm going to place cherubim at the entrance. That's why, I, I personally, I don't think it's too. I think God put a host there and said, no, no, no. A flaming sword. Don't enter here. Don't come past this, Adam. Because I don't want you to live in this sinful world forever. Think about it. Would you? Would you want to live here forever?
could did Jesus say each day has enough trouble of its own? Do I want 150 years of each day of trouble? See, is it not grace that God said, no, Adam, don't eat. I don't want you to suffer in this world forever. How much better the other option? To die. To physically die. To be cut from the tree of life. To die. But to live without sin forever. So I can live forever with all the effects of sin or I can die and live forever without sin. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you that you provided a way through which even though we die, we live. You provided your Son. You gave us your Son so that we, even though we die, we live without sin for all of eternity. God gives to us that picture because when we turn to the last chapter of his word, And God wants to give us a glimpse of what it's going to be like to live without sin. Guess what's there? A tree of life. A tree of life. Oh, not Eden again. No. Eden forever. Eden without sin for all of eternity. A tree of life bears its fruit in every season, the leaves of which is for the healing of the nations. My friends, when you and I get to glory, it's not going to be a physical tree up there. Because that tree of life Christ. When we are in Christ, even though we die, we live. Father, thank you. First time you give to us information about cherubim, about your good and holy angels, they're there to communicate grace. Thank you for the message they brought to Adam, to Eve. Thank you for the message they bring to us tonight. In Christ's name, God's people say, Amen.